The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the seventh day of August 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us tonight, as always, and I'm happy to welcome you aboard. So glad you can be with us. we got some great people in the lineup tonight. Up first... We will speak to one of the stars of the 1969 Miracle Mets, Cleon Jones. Cleon has a new book out titled Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets. And in the second half, we'll change it up, switch gears, and welcome in the longtime drummer for Blondie. Clem Burke will join us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, we have a great show with some great people some good talk and memories up ahead tonight. Social media, I want to remind you, we are out on Facebook. We're there at WGBB Sports Talk New York. You'll find so much sports information there, show information, so stop by, check it. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We are out there, and Twitter, at WGBB Sports Talk, and you can follow me on Twitter, at B. Donahue, WGBB and all past shows that we do here on GBB, they're out on the website. So if you miss one, don't worry. You can listen to them whenever you want. Well, our first guest, he's one of the heroes of my youth. So many things to discuss. The Mets record books, batting 340 in 1969. The Black Cat, the Shoe Polish Play, Gil Hodges, Tom Seaver, Tommy Agee. These days, he's involved in work that's really much more important than baseball. He's founded the Last Out Community Foundation to refurbish and build affordable homes, combat blight, and provide positive youth programs for Africatown, Alabama community. He still resides there with his wonderful wife of 57 years, Angela. He has a new book out from our friends at Triumph Books. It's titled, Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets. It's a real honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Cleon Jones. Cleon, good evening. Well, hello there, Bill. How are you? Just wonderful, Cleon. And I tell you, it's a real, as I said, a real pleasure to welcome you aboard tonight. And right off the bat, I want to ask you about playing baseball as a youth in Alabama in the Jim Crow South. Give us a little insight about your youth playing ball. Well, uh, you're taking me way back uh, <laughs> to my boyhood, but <laughs> uh, you got to start someplace. Yeah, uh, we, we've always been motivated here in the South. I, I was fortunate I came up in a in, in a little town uh, called Africa Town Plateau, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, it, was, it was quite a few families uh, who had uh, lots of kids, 11, 12, uh there was one family who had 19 kids. There was another one who had 22. And most of the boys in my neighborhood, or most of the kids in my neighborhood was, was boys. So baseball was the order of the day. Uh, baseball, 
was American sports uh, as we saw it at that time. And everybody wanted to play baseball uh, because of Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, da- no doubt about it, Jackie uh, Robinson inspired all of us. Uh, and so we, we, we were inspired by Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens and uh, the, the other heroes. But uh, Jackie was our man because baseball was our sports. Because all, all of our parents and our grandparents was into baseball because of baseball. And we all sat around the radio and uh, actually looked into the radio to listen to the Dodger games, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, hear Jackie uh, and Pee Wee and Gil Hodges and uh, Roy Campanella and, and the whole group uh, do their things. And so I got hooked on baseball, and so did the rest of the community. Understood. And that's a, yeah. Gotcha, Cleon. Yeah. Now I want to ask you how. Tell us a story of how uh, you batted right-handed, but you threw left-handed. I think there's a good story behind that. Yeah. Well, that that, that is a, a good story and a true story. Uh, with all the kids, uh, we we, <laughs> uh, we didn't have much equipment. Mm-hmm. So uh, the area that uh, where we played in the community, we didn't have a community park. So the area that we played had uh, some debris in right field, and uh, I was a left-handed, uh, I hit from the left side at that time, and the kids, uh, I, I would hit the ball in the, in the debris or, or the water, and it would, uh, after a while, it would stop the game because the, the ball got water soaked. So uh, they told me, if you don't change over and hit from the right side, you can't play. Oh, so man. it was just me against all the rest of the kids, so I had to change over. And and I got on the right side, and uh, you, I think you know the rest of the story. Sure, there you go. That's the story mm-hmm. about Cleon batting right, throwing left, and uh, that's how we know him with the Mets. Now, on your journey up through the minor leagues, Cleon, was there any coach or player uh, who really had a positive impact or an influence on you? Well, all, all of my, my, my high school coaches and, and uh, certainly uh, – my teachers, uh, and I, that, that was a guy in the neighborhood who we call James Fett Robinson, uh, who managed to, uh, put together a team in the neighborhood. He, he would go out and get all the equipment and set up all the games and all we had to do was show up and play. So Fett Robinson, uh, was there each and every day. He, he worked at, uh, Brooklyn Field, uh, and each day he got off work, uh, he would meet us at the school where we would practice, uh, for a game on su- Saturday or Sunday. And that happened, uh, every day, uh, through my youth. So I'm appreciative to, uh, Fat Robinson, uh, Clyde Gray, uh, Charles Rose, Charles Jackson, uh, C- Curtis Harden. All of these people played a major role in my sports life and Miss uh, Valina McCants, uh, was one of my teachers who in- inspired me, uh, to read about Jackie Robinson and, and know what he had done and, and to, uh, there's only one Jackie Robinson. Right. But to be the best that I could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we're speaking to Cleon yeah. Jones tonight on the program. Do you remember your major league debut, Cleon? I do. Uh, uh, 
some things you don't ever forget. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't that great. But uh, I played at the uh, the Polo Grounds. I remember coming up. Uh, I think we played. Uh, our first team was uh, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, uh, Cup was the pitcher, and uh, I, I grounded out a, a weak fly ball, a weak ground ball somewhere. My first at bat, but uh, it, it, it <laughs> that was great because number one, I did make contact, and uh, uh, it's quite frightening to be on the on the same team. Uh, Especially to be playing on the case of Stainer. So I, I was really excited. Uh, but I have a, I had a, com- a common force with me on that team, Al Jackson, mm-hmm. who, uh, who prepared me in, in, in many ways, uh, to become a professional ball player, uh, an everyday ball player, because he was a gentleman and a scholar and, and, uh, he tutored me. And, uh, again, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. A great Met, a great Met, little Al Jackson, folks. Yes, right. uh, yeah. play, played. Uh, in fact, he was on the '69 ball club for a while. Absolutely, Al Absolutely. Jackson, right, Cleon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Al, Al broke uh, camp with us from spring training, and uh, he was a part of the team uh, up until June, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Now we'll we'll jump ahead to '65, Cleon. You. You find yourself, you're, you're, uh, on opening day, you appeared as a pinch hitter for Tom Parsons, a six to one loss to the Dodgers. Two days later, you made your first start, uh, not too inspiring, but you made it. Uh, a hint of what was to come, a single in the 11th inning scoring great Mets Joe Christopher and Danny Napoleon. You remember that, Cleon? <laughs> How can I forget that? Yeah. I can get that, yeah. Certainly, I, I, I remember that. Uh, uh, 65, Joe Christopher was a great uh, friend of mine. Uh, uh, haven't heard from him in a while. But uh, he, he was one, one of the guys that uh, laid his hands on me and uh, tried to push me forward uh, and tutored me along with Al Jackson. So, yeah, Joe uh, played a major role in the uh my becoming a, a, a real met. Danny Napoleon uh was a friend of mine and uh, uh we all thought he was gonna be uh a great home run hitter. But uh things happen and uh 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 but we think about those guys all the time and, and, and we just move forward and hope that things are well with them. Right. Uh, nonetheless, great names in Mets history, Cleon, that's for sure. Now, we'll go to 1967. Uh, the Mets send a pitcher by the name of Bill Dennehy and $100,000 to the Washington Senators for the, for the manager, Gil Hodges. Now, we spoke in Cooperstown about Gil. You, you had a great talk with uh, Jay Horowitz and uh, a couple of your teammates. Recount a bit for us about... What Gil, uh, his impact upon his arrival with the New York Mets, Cleon? Well, uh, it, it was a great trade, uh, uh, for the Mets, uh, in getting Gil Hodges, uh, because he, uh, we had gotten, uh, Tom Seaver, uh, and we knew we had, uh, guys like Nolan Ryan and, and Kuzman and, and others, uh, in, in the minor leagues and, and were ready to come up, uh, but, 
we hadn't had a stable stable manager uh in the team to me uh the only way you're going to win is that uh things have to come from the from the top down you Johnny Murphy was a good general manager uh at that time and he went out and got Gail Hodges was uh stabilized that 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 uh position uh as a manager he got great coaches and we started to fill in uh Good ball players. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gil, if you, if Gil, there's no Gil Hodges, there's no 69 Mets. You and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. That's how much he meant to, to the ball club. Uh, certainly, uh, he, he was, uh, would have been, to me, he, he was a Hall of Fame everyday player, ball player. He certainly would have been a Hall of Fame manager because he, he, he did everything right. And what I mean by that is he was good with pitchers. He was good with, uh, uh, everyday ball players. And he was great with the bench players. Uh, as you know, we platoon. Uh, there was only, uh, four starters on that team, 69. A lot of, a lot of people never realized that. But there was only four starters. Bud Harrison, Jerry Grody, Tommy Agee, and myself. Mm-hmm. We we were on the phone, knew that we were going to be in the lineup when we got to the ballpark. And these other guys bought into us, Roboda, Shamsky, uh, Crane Poole, and then we got, uh, Clendenna. But they, they had a role to play. And he said from day one, uh, know your role and be prepared to go in to help the ball club win. He said, you guys are greater, are better. He didn't use the word great. He said, you're better than what you think you are. Mm-hmm. And it would be proven during the course of the year. And we all looked around at each other and said, what in the, what in the hell is he talking about? <laughs> but uh, we didn't have that much confidence in each other at that time. So certainly it, it was prove, proven uh, throughout uh, uh, the year of 69. But when we got him and he started to build, we, we could see the change in 68. Uh the only difference is that AG had a real off year that year, and we probably would have been much better had uh, he had the kind of year that he had in '69. But again, Gil Hodges uh, was a man uh, for the job. Uh, he, he proved that, and uh, I'm a firm believer that we would have won one or two more pennants uh, and perhaps World Series had he lived. Good point, Cleon, definitely. And you, you mentioned there another key piece of the 69 Mets coming aboard in 68, uh, your friend from Mobile, Tommy Agee. And uh, right. th- that was a tremendous addition. We're speaking with Cleon Jones tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh, I want to ask you, Cleon, about the shoe polish play. Let, let's set, set the stage Dave McNally's on the hill for the Orioles in the 1969 World Series. Looks like a pitch in the dirt. You start walking to first base. Take us through that. Well, it, 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 I don't know how it looked to everybody else, uh, but I know how it felt to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So my, uh, my thing was that uh, the umpire didn't give me any go-ahead, and so I, I was just going to get back in there. And hit, I wanted to hit off the guy anyway. You know, we, I, I think we were behind 
at that, that particular time. And so when, when, when the ball hit my, my foot, it ricocheted. Uh, had it not hit anything, it would have gone straight back to the screen. Good point. But people don't realize that it ended up in the dugout, so it had to ricochet or something. Uh, no, the catcher didn't never say it hit him. The umpire never said it hit him. I'm the only one said that it that it hit mm-hmm. because that's who it hit. Right. So yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of things said about that, but the truth is, the ball hit me and I knew it. Uh, uh, the shoe polish thing is that uh, we had a, a trainer at that time, Nick, who polished the shoes each, each and every day. So that's where the shoe polish came off of my shoe because, uh, you know, had it been one of those situations where you, you, you your shoes uh, wasn't kept up or wasn't being polished each and every day, the shoe polish might have not have been on the shoe. But it happened to be on there, and Gil, Gil Hodges brought it out. And... I, I, I'll say this about Gil Hodges. Uh, he, he, he didn't believe in Hanky Panky. He, he wasn't a cheater in any way. Right. He, he, he wasn't going to take advantage of any situation. Either it had to be the truth, uh, or we move on. That, that's, that, that's, that's who we are talking about. We're talking about a straightforward, honest individual. No nonsense individual at that. So, no, it, it the ball hit me and I knew it. Uh, otherwise, uh, had it not, ball would have gone straight back to the, uh, to the backstop, uh, but it ricocheted into the dugout. There you have it, folks. And, and, yeah. Yep. That's the story. Straight from Cleon. That, that's it. And, uh, as we said, Clendenin comes up after that, hits a two-run homer, the Mets are on their way. Now, when Davey Johnson hits the the fly ball off Jerry Kuzman in Game 5, Cleon, did you think that ball was going out, or did you have a beat on it right away? Well, as an outfielder, you, 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 instinctively, you, you know uh, <laughs> if you got to hurry back to the fence to watch it go over the fence or try to catch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the ball went up, I, I, I took a step back. And I realized the ball was in front of me. So I took a couple of steps in and got under the ball. So no, David Johnson, uh, we were roommates when he managed the Mets and I was the batting coach. Uh, he, he said that was the hardest ball he's ever hit in his career. <laughs> and he don't know how it stayed in the, <laughs> in the stadium, yeah. in the ballpark. And, uh, he said it must have been some supreme being <laughs> that knocked that ball down. So I could handle it, yeah. But I maintain the fact that it was—it was just a weak fly ball uh, from a weak hitter, and uh, we, we la- <laughs> so we laughed about that and joked about that all the time. Yeah. I, how ironic, though, Cleon, that he comes back to manage the ball club in the next World Series that the Mets are in. I mean, uh, you, you can't make stuff like that up. It's—it's it's kind of magical in a way. Well, it is, and, and, and then, but, yeah, even, uh, let's go a little bit further than that. Uh, Casham, who was the general manager at Baltimore at that time, came over, uh, yeah. to be the general manager of the Mets. So, Baltimore was in New York, uh, uh, <laughs> trying, to, and, and they succeeded this time. They won it. 
yep. But you're, they wanted in New York. You're right, Cleon. Yeah, another connection yeah. there. That's for sure. Right. We're talking Absolutely. to Cleon Jones tonight about 1969, about his great career. Let's talk about 73, Cleon, what, what they call the ball-off-the-wall play. Now, a guy by the name of Dave Augustine, who who I don't think we ever heard from again, hits a long fly ball to left field at Shea Stadium. Now, instead of going out or hitting the top of the wall and going into the opposing dugout, that ball comes back to you. Well, uh, this play was just the opposite of what we just finished talking about with yeah. David Johnson. When, when he hit the ball, I, 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 I I ran back and I realized the ball was going to be over my head, over the fence. So I, 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 it's either going to hit the wall or go over. So I was positioning myself to, to get the corner off the wall and never, uh, hit the top of the wall. And when it popped up, I, I just could step too forward, pluck the ball off. And Wayne Garrett was playing shortstop that day. And luckily, he, he, you know, he was playing short. He was just a few feet off the infield grass. Mm-hmm. Had it been Buddy, Buddy would have been out much further than that because he was so quick on the infield that when the ball went up, he came out and, uh, it had been tough to make that throw. But Wayne was playing shortstop that day. I relayed the ball to him. He made a perfect throw to home plate. Uh, a lot of people credit me for, uh, for the play. But the play was actually made by Wayne Garrett. Uh, all I did was give him the ball in time enough, uh, to get it to grow. No, it, it was, uh, Duffy might have been catching that day. Ron Hodges. Uh, Ron Hodges, Cleon. Oh, Ron Hodges, yeah. yeah. I know it was somebody else. Yeah, uh-huh. Ron Hodges. Yeah, yeah. Might have been, yeah. Uh, Ron Hodges was catching and made the play. So, uh, <clears throat> that, that, again, uh, was a key, uh, move and uh, on the mess part. Uh, to end up, you know, winning uh, <clears throat> and going to the World Series. Right. That that was a tremendous play, a classic play in Mets history. Now, I want to ask you, Cleon, about the 73 series. Now, a lot of people think that the Mets could have won the 73 series, and a lot of guys on the Oakland A's said that was the toughest series they had that year. The toughest team they had to face was the New York Mets. Now, Yogi made a decision. Uh, he could send Seaver to the mound in game six on three days rest, uh, to try to close Oakland out, return the Mets to, uh, the championship, or he could start George Stone. Now, what did you think about that decision, Cleon? Well, I thought that was a turning point in the series. I, yeah. Uh, I, and, and I, I, I can understand, uh, Yogi's position there. We, we, uh, we talk as a team, uh, and we, we talked to Yoga about sending, uh, Stone up. Stone was probably our best pitcher down the stretch. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, he, he pitched well. I don't think he pitched the inning in the World Series, but, uh, we wanted him to go, uh, for that sixth ball game. And even if he didn't, we didn't win that ball game, uh, we got a, well-rested Siva, uh, we got a Matlack, we got a McGraw, we, we, we got three, three top pitches we can throw at them, mm-hmm. uh, for the, for, for the last ball game. Uh, so, 
Yoga said, well, I can't do that. Uh, the writers uh, are going to eat me up if I try to do something like that, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just believe that, that that was our best out. And because we, we lost a tough ball game uh, in, in, uh, in the fifth ball game in New York, where we, we, we should have, in my opinion, swept uh, Oakland the same way we did Baltimore. Uh, because, uh, I believe it was in the eighth or ninth inning where somebody hit a ball, uh, to right, uh, right, right center and it hit it in the middle of one the track for a double when that should never happen, uh, in the eighth inning. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we didn't, our defense wasn't prepared to keep the ball in front of us at that time. And, uh, again, that, that, that's, that's how Gil Hodges, uh, was different. From any other manager that I played for, he played the entire ball game, every nine inning, every out, and everybody had to be in the right position uh, for things to, to go forward. Uh, I believe Don Hahn was in the uh, was in the outfield, mm -hmm. uh, and when that took place, uh, I think they ended up tying up the ball game. We went ten innings or something like that and lost it. I can't remember. Uh, but uh, getting back to, to Oakland, uh, yeah, that was our best out was to uh, go with George Stone. And I, I, I feel like until this day that had we done that, uh, uh, we would have we won that World Series. That, that's uh, what makes baseball great, Cleon, is talking about what if and uh, the different strategies and uh, – People to this day wonder about it. In the few minutes we have left, Cleon, I want to talk about your last out community foundation that uh, you're using to help the citizens down there in Africa Town. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, thank, thanks to my, my wife of 57, 58 years. Uh, she, she taught, and my daughter and my son, uh, they talked talk me into doing a the last our foundation, uh, so that we could continue to help the people here in my hometown. Uh, we, we, we live kind of in, in a depressed, uh, uh, area where, 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 uh, we're in a food desert, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we've done since, I mean, the last 30 years that we've been home, we, we've been helping people refurbish their houses, uh, Putting tops on people's houses uh, and help building uh, to try to support the neighborhood. When I came up in the neighborhood, it was fourteen uh, fourteen thousand people in, in the neighborhood. Now it's only two thousand, mm -hmm. and and uh, we're aging communities. So uh, our whole aim is to uh, try to build and bring young people back into the community. So we can refurbish the community, help our churches, our schools um, to move forward, and 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 try to uh, try to grow the community. Uh, and it, that's that's been our goals for the last thirty years. And since we've gotten the foundation, uh, uh, it's worked. Where we we put so many people. We had one lady to be burned out, and she couldn't get any help anywhere. And, we went in and looked at it, and I got volunteers and, and people to donate stuff. 
uh, and we had to buy some stuff actually. But we, she's back in her house. She's uh, she's in her seventies, uh, and and she's back in her house, and she's happy. So th- those are the kind of things that that we're doing. Uh, we 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 eradicate uh, lead with some of our partners and uh, asbestos and all those things. So we do the whole gamut uh, to try to help the people that need help. When you're aging community like Africa Town, uh, there, there, there are so many things that need to happen uh, to keep people healthy uh, and keep them out of the hospital uh, by by tackling uh, mold, uh, lead, and asbestos, and all these things. Yet when you go into a house that's over 50 years of age and and, and try to refurbish it, all those things come into play. So it, it, it's a it, it's it's a big task, but yeah. we're up to it. We're up to it, and and we get up every morning at six o'clock, uh, going out, uh, doing the best that we can do, and uh, hope that people realize what we're doing and uh, donate whatever they can and uh, to try to help the cause. Wonderful, Cleon. That's the last out community foundation, Cleon Jones and his wife, Angela. Cleon, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us up here in New York. The book again, folks, Coming Home. It's, uh, it, Coming Home to Home Plate. It's also Coming Home to Africa Town for Cleon Jones. Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets. The amazing Cleon Jones. Thank you so much, Cleon. Bill, thank you for having us, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. And uh, I hope life serves you well. You too, Cleon, and we'll, we'll see you Old Timers Weekend. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. There we go, folks. <laughs> Cleon will be here that weekend, August 27th. Well, up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll speak with the drummer of one of my favorite bands, Blondie. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Clem Burke will be with us, so stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. I hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend. Hot, hot here in New York all week. Two weeks ago, Hall of Fame induction weekend in Cooperstown. Always a great time there. We'll talk more about that another time. But speaking of Hall of Famers, we switch gears now. Welcome in a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Our next guest, he's known best for being the longtime drummer for Blondie. 
And as we said, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, he played with the Ramones for a bit. He played with some other illustrious people that we'll talk about while Blondie uh, was taking a bit of a break. Uh, they will play the Paramount in Huntington on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, August 10th. A uh, few tickets uh, left as of yesterday. I'd get online and get over there for this show, folks. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Clem Burke. Clem, good evening. Hey, Bill. How you doing, man? Just wonderful, wonderful. It's great to have you aboard, Clem. I'd, I'd like great. like to thank Tommy for setting this up for us. He He did a great job, and he's a good man. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. You know, we've been really busy uh, in sure. the world for those, ever since the uh, pandemic kind of let up. You know, we're kind of working on a new album, uh, getting ready to go back on tour, and also uh, we have an archival box set that's coming out August 28th. So we're looking back and looking forward at all at the same time. So it's been pretty interesting. Nice, nice. Now, you grew up in Bayonne. And, I uh, did, yeah. And uh, you were close to the New York City music scene as a kid. Well, yeah. I mean, I used to go into the village, you know, via uh, bus and train and uh, going to the Fillmore East and saw a lot of great shows there back in the day. You know, people like the Allman Brothers, Santana, Moody Blues, um, gee, you know, Miles Davis, I think we saw there, you know, uh, the promoter, Bill Graham, uh, rest in peace you know he was really about having an eclectic bill on those shows you know so that wouldn't be the bands would be all of the same kind of uh musical genre let's say where you'd get like miles davis playing with the allman brothers as i mentioned and and things like that so yeah i mean i grew up in the metro area fortunately for me uh it was an easy jog into uh you know new york city into lower manhattan and uh I moved into the, uh, Manhattan, into the uh, West Village when I was about 18 years old and uh, had a band that was playing the local clubs there. It's where I kind of met up with my uh, partners in Blondie. Now, you were recruited by those guys when, about 1974? Yeah, more or less 1974. There was a place in uh, New York City called Club 82, mm-hmm. which was kind of like uh, the glam rock uh, central for... Um, Bands like the New York Dolls and uh, Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys and a band called Teenage Lust. And a lot of people that wound up at CBGB were originally hanging out at Club 82. They had rock and roll one night a week, and uh, everyone would turn up for that. And uh, famously, the New York Dolls did a big uh, Halloween show there where they all dressed in drag and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I had a band called Sweet Revenge, and uh, my partners in Blondie had a band called The Stilettos. So we were kind of on the same uh, circuit at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it made a lot of sense uh, for all of us to uh, hook up together. We had a lot of common uh, denominators in as far as what we were influenced by, whether it be the Ronettes or the Velvet Underground or David Bowie, for instance. So, uh, yeah, it was a good time back then in the mid-'70s. It was an easy lifestyle. I think my first apartment uh, in the West Village was <coughs> – excuse me. It was maybe $160 a month. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Things have changed. Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. <coughs> How about your drumming, uh, Clem? Who were your influences as a drummer? <coughs> well, I think the first professional rock and roll band I saw was uh, the Vanilla Fudge. So, uh, Carmine. Carmine Apathy. Yeah. 
uh, was a big influence, along with uh, Dino Dinelli of the Rascals. And, of course, uh, you know, Ringo Starr, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I think everyone in my generation was inspired by seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Um, I've come to realize, my friends in the U.K., you know, the, the Beatles were really, you know, they were from the North, which was kind of like uh, uncool at the time. And they were really kind of like the boys next door. But for us in America, when we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, it was like they were kind of like flown in from another planet. You know, it was like yeah. unbelievable. I think if you talk to people like Steve Van or Bruce, you know, Springsteen or anyone of, of uh, my generation, uh, the Beatles were really the, uh, the trigger to kick it off for everyone to kind of be inspired to uh, start a rock and roll band. So, um, and then there's the drummers Hal Blaine and uh, Earl Palmer, who were mm. both session drummers in L.A., and Hal played on things like Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, and uh, well, my friend Earl Palmer, to the last 10 years of his life, I spent a lot of time with Earl. He was a real inspiration to me. He played on everything from Tats Domino's early records to Little Richard to Eddie Cochran, and, uh, you know, uncredited. Both of them more or less were uncredited, but they played on most of the hits that were coming out of... Uh, the 60s, you know, whether it be Paul Verner Raiders, the Birds, Beach Boys, etc. So they were unbeknownst to me as influences, but very much so. So, um, yeah, kind of started there for me, you know. Sure, yeah. You talk about the Beatles and being on Ed Sullivan. One guy, uh, the, some of the drummers I've had on the program, one in particular that I remember was Liberty DeVito, who said once, right. he, once he saw Ringo, that was it. <laughs> that was it for him. Well, you know, you know, the, the, the Beatles were like four rock and roll stars. You know, no one was in the background. For me, they all stood out. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, you know. Yeah. Ringo was up on the big pedestal on the drum riser, you know, and featured on, uh, you know, a handful of songs that he sang lead on. And, uh, yeah, they were like, you know, so-called the, the uh, four-headed monster. <laughs> but, yeah, Liberty's a great guy, nice guy. I met him a few times. Great drummer, great musician. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, everyone of, of our generation, uh, the Beatles is kind of where it all starts. I mean, uh, I really like the Four Seasons a lot, too. I, I think a lot of, uh, pre, uh, pre the Beatles being in the charts, the Four Seasons, I think, had a few hits prior. And being from Jersey, you know, I was kind of proud of the Four Seasons. And they made a lot of great records, great production, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. really great lyrics and uh, great musicianship on those records. You know, there's was, was really uh, really something the Four Seasons as well. Yeah, immortal, immortals for sure. Now, I think we used to have uh, battles and fights in the schoolyard. Where, uh, who was better, the Four Seasons or the Beatles? Because there was a lot of <laughs> like greaser type guys. No offense, that were kind of yeah. You know, they were kind of into the Four Seasons. You know, being American and all that kind of stuff. And as I said, the Beatles like, seemed like they came from outer space. Yes, you're, you're right. You're right. Clem Burke with us tonight yep. on the program. Now, during the 80s and 90s, uh, Blondie was disbanded. You played for so many great people. Uh, the Romantics, for one. Pete Townsend, Dylan, uh, the Eurythmic, excuse me, the Eurythmics. Uh, talk yep. a little bit about that point in your career, Clem. Well, very happy to see Eurythmics being inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Mm -hmm. I think it was a long time coming. And uh, I met up with uh, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, who are, are the Eurythmics. Um, 
in the early 80s, and I did a record with them in Germany with a producer called Connie Plank, who uh, produced, amongst other people, Kraftwerk. And when you get to Blondie doing Heart of Glass, we were kind of very much influenced by uh, German electronic music. And when I first met Connie at his studio yeah, outside of Cologne in a place called Neunkirchen, um, he uh, referenced the fact that he heard that influence of uh, the German electronic music in Heart of Glass, and he was uh, very uh, enamored with the fact that we were able to uh, kind of integrate electronic music into our sound and have a hit record with it. And uh, for Connie to say that to me uh, was a very proud moment for me. But, um, yeah, um, I had an ongoing relationship with, with Eurythmics uh, yeah, through the... Uh, through the 80s into the 90s, we won a Grammy for uh, an album called uh, Revenge. It's uh, a track called Missionary Man was on that that I uh, had the uh, honor of playing on. And uh, they remain friends of mine to this day. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Blondie was kind of like the platform for us to go off and do other things. Obviously, we became known with our success with, with Blondie. And uh, when we uh, took that long break... I was able to kind of go on with my uh, my musical career. I mean, I really didn't know quite where it was going to head, but, um, you know, I got a lot of people, you know, giving me a call and uh, went off and did some great work with a lot of different people, like you mentioned, uh, Bob Dylan and Pete Townsend and people like that, my heroes, you know. So uh, sure. that was fantastic. Yeah, you sure did. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Checkered Pass. Now, that, that's an interesting uh-huh. lineup. We, we, we've we had Steve Jones on the show before when he, when oh, he, uh, he okay. wrote his book, uh, Lonely Boy. Talk right. a little bit about Checkered Past, uh, Clem, please. Well, yeah, and by the way, uh, you know, Steve's book has been turned into a, a miniseries on Hulu. Right. I don't know if you've seen that or not, called Pistol. Yeah. Which is uh, pretty good, pretty fun, and... Uh, Actually, Glenn Matlock, the, the original bass player from the Pistols, is now playing in Blondie, and uh, had the opportunity to go to a screening with Glenn and sit by his side as he watched, as we binge watched the entire—I don't know what it is—eight hours of nice. that programming with uh, the director Danny uh, Boyle uh, being present. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, Checkered Past was a band that kind of evolved out of uh, a friendship with. Uh, with Steve and a guy called Michael DeBar, who's uh, now a DJ on uh, Steven's uh, radio show, you know, the uh, Underground Garage on Sirius. Right. And uh, Michael had done a solo record with our producer, the Blondie producer, Mike Chapman. And uh, Nigel Harrison, our bass player in Blondie, and myself went to England to do some shows promoting Michael's solo album, which eventually led to us forming the band Checkered Pass with uh, Tony Sales and uh, with Nigel, Steve Jones, Tony Sales, Michael Vibar, and myself. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because that record caught, got a lot of flack because I don't think people knew what to expect from us as far as coming out of the so-called punk rock new wave scene. And the record was very much kind of like a hard rock record. And uh, I remember we got some unfavorable uh, reviews, like in Rolling Stone, for instance. But a friend of mine had recently showed me, uh, there's a magazine called Kerrang! And uh, the best albums of 1984 were the, uh, according to that magazine, the first album was uh, the Van Halen's first album, I guess. The second album was Purple Rain. 
And the third best album of 84 was the Checkered Past album. So, nice. Kind of uh, interesting, you know, yeah. in retrospect. Uh, yeah, you know, we, um, it, was, it was a rock and roll record that we did in LA, and uh, we had some fun with that band. Uh, we did some shows. Uh, we toured with Rat, we toured with uh, Duran Duran, and we actually did an entire U.S. tour with uh, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. Uh, Steve Van Zandt's uh, band, and that's where we all kind of connected back when with Steve. So, um, yeah, it was fun. It was a good band. It was short-lived. I think we could have continued on, but uh, extenuating circumstances prevented us uh, continuing. <laughs> I don't want to get into all of that. Yeah. Steve, kind of re- Steve kind of revisited his, uh, his bad habits. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, now, you talked a little bit about the electronic uh, sound coming out of uh, England back in the, in the uh, early 80s. And I was, I was there as a student, and you heard bands like Visage, uh, Spandau Ballet, Ultra, right. Ultravox, and Blondie hit the charts with Rapture. Now, that, that was a little foray from you guys into rap. Right. Uh, well, Chris Stein in particular, you know, our guitarist and songwriting partner in Blondie, uh, was always a big fan of R&B. Back in the day when we first started, we would cover a lot of different sort of uh, R&B songs, whether it be by Ike and Tina Turner or by LaBelle or, or things like that, because we, we did do a lot of cover songs originally, as most bands do when they, when they begin, before you really kind of get into writing your original material. And I think that might be a little bit lacking today. Um, you know, with younger bands, they kind of come out of the box writing their own material, and they don't have a point of reference necessarily to uh, learn how to really do it the right way. But, um, yeah, Rapture was, uh, you know, a very different song for us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been said before, when we, when we turned that song in, uh, the record company really didn't know what to make of it. Uh, along with the, it's on an album called Auto American, uh, along with, uh, Titus High, both of which, uh, achieved, uh, number one status in the U.S. And at the time when we turned the album in, the record company said they didn't hear any hits on the record, so. Oh boy. Go figure. Yeah. A lot they know, right? Um, <laughs> that might be a stand, that's almost a standard thing that people say, well, there's no single. I think Tom Petty has a song about that too, you know. <laughs> the record yeah. company doesn't hear a single, you know. Yeah, right. Clem but Burke we always tonight. followed our own, uh, you know, our own path. You know, we yeah. followed our muse. We we were never really dictated to uh, to sound a certain way or to look a certain way. It was all kind of came from uh, within the individuals in the band, and there was a, a you know a lot of different uh, <clears throat> inspirations, you know, with the collective members of Blondie, whether it be things like the Velvet Underground, David Bowie all the way to things like Kraftwerk or into, like, soundtrack stuff like uh, Nina Rota from uh, the Fellini films and, you know, various other things along the way, which kind of amalgamated itself into a, kind of assimilating into what I would think is the Blondie sound. You know, we were very much influenced by New York City and the whole metro area, whether it be Latin music, you know, reggae, uh, R&B, blues, uh, things like, uh, you know, as I said, like the Velvet Underground. Uh, it all kind of went into like a, like a musical melting pot that became the sound of Blondie. I think we still kind of carry that on to this day. I think we very much sound like uh, New York City. What were your 
some of your favorite bands, Clem, coming out of CBGBs in Max's Kansas City back in the day? Well, I mean, for me, the best band, and actually, funny enough, a very well-known band, but certainly the least most commercial band was the band Television. Mm-hmm. Um, the album Marquee Moon is a fantastic album. It always winds up on, you know, whether it be Rolling Stone or Spin or whatever, you know, top 100 albums of all time. And I think still to this day, there's probably very few people that have actually heard it. You know, there was the band Television, as I said. Um, Mink DeVille were an amazing band. A guy called Willie DeVille had very much, uh, you know, rooted in uh, sort of the grill building kind of R&B sound. And, uh, you know, there was obviously the Ramones, great, and... Uh, you know, there was then Talking Heads. I mean, they were all our kind of, uh, you know, our, our cohorts, our peers, you know, at the time. And I think we all influenced each other in a lot of ways. But for uh, for Blondie, it all kind of started with the New York Dolls and the Velvet Underground, and we kind of went from there. And, you know, the Shangri-Las, the whole kind of grill building, grill group kind of stuff that was going on as well. Yeah, the grill building, yeah. That yeah, was a great yeah. Hit. A lot of history. You mentioned I mean, that, our yeah. Original our, our producer, Richard Goddard, who produced the first two Blondie albums, was a hit songwriter. You know, I mean, he wrote My Boyfriend's Back. He wrote uh, wow. uh, Nighttime by The Strange Loves. He wrote I Want Candy. Actually, he was in the band The Strange Loves. So he had a background of uh, being a songwriter, and that whole, you know, brill-building aesthetic was kind of predominant in Richard's uh, approach to producing Blondie. So, um that was a big help for us because, of course, we loved all that stuff. And it wasn't very considered to be, you know, very trendy at the time. It was kind of like we were kind of outliers, more or less. You know, we were not being influenced by, for instance, like Zeppelin or the, the mega groups of the day, yes, and things like that. I mean, it's all good music, but that's not where we were coming from with the sound of Blondie. So uh, Richard was a big help for us early on. Now I have I've had Marky on the program. Talk. Oh, Marky, yeah, I was just with him in Ibiza. Yeah, about like, a month ago. How about your time with the Ramones? Well, that is a kind of thorn in my side in some ways because okay, I have been asked to join several times. I, in fact, I was asked to join originally when Tommy Ramone, the original Ramones drummer, was leaving. Uh, I was in the UK on tour with Blondie, and I was at a Ramones show, and Tommy put it to me that he was going to be leaving the band, and would I be interested in joining the Ramones? And, of course, you know, I was in Blondie, and I very much um, liked what we were doing in Blondie, so I, at that time, said uh, that wouldn't be something that I'd be interested in. And uh, along the way, um, when I played with Eurythmics, a guy called Gary Kerfitz also managed Eurythmics in the U.S., and he managed the Ramones, and uh, I think at one time I was asked to join once again. But uh, when I actually did acquiesce and to play with the Ramones, it was kind of strange because they wanted it to be automatic. Primarily Johnny Ramone didn't want to rehearse. So I never rehearsed with the Ramones. And it was kind of trial by fire. And I did a couple of shows with them. And uh, it was very intense. One was at Garden City. uh in New Jersey. Another one was in, uh, I think, Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, it wasn't 100% because, um, you know, I just also recently played uh, a bunch of shows with the Go-Go's. 
and it's not immediate. You know, the music is a little more complicated than you would think, you know, when you sit down. Okay, you can maybe hum along to the song, but to actually sit down and play the drums to a song, it takes a little bit of doing. You know, you kind of got to get your muscle memory together, you know, your, your body coordination, which is a big part of what I have with my, uh, my Klemberg drumming project. We kind of explore those things about drumming. So, um, yeah. The Ramones thing, I mean, it was interesting while I did it, but uh, I was good friends with Joey, actually, and uh, we talked about kind of uh, continuing on, and unfortunately he passed away, and, and as crazy as it may seem, all of the, Ramones, the original Ramones are all gone. Marky continues the legacy of the Ramones, and mm -hmm. I think he's doing a good job with it, with his stand. So, um, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, the Ramones, I think they are probably the Beatles of... Uh, of our generation, you know, after the Beatles, the Ramones are probably one of the most influential rock and roll bands of all time. You know, I was proud to, to be involved with the Ramones, and we were good friends with Arturo Vega, who was their designer and lighting director, who is also, unfortunately, not around anymore. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting time, you know, with the Ramones. But, uh, you know, it's funny how many people come up to me and mention that. <laughs> and I came up with the name... Elvis Ramon. I didn't really want to be Clemmy Ramon, so I came up with that whole ah, that's Elvis a, That's Ramon a good thing. one. Yeah. No, that's yeah, <laughs> and, John, and Johnny was a big, big Elvis fan, so he kind of went with that right away because he was a hard person to get any kind of uh, agreement from, uh, for instance. He wouldn't rehearse. He refused to rehearse. I think he looked at his guitar more like a jackhammer or something. It's <laughs> what he did when he went to work. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, they were brilliant. The Ramones were brilliant. They sure were. Well, Clem, I'm going to let you go. So many more things okay, to talk about, but I, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some right. with us out here on the island. Again, folks. Yeah, well, go ahead. we're really looking forward to the show at the yeah. Paramount. Actually, it turns out I, I did play at the Paramount a few years ago. I had a band called the Empty Hearts. Empty Hearts, with, right. Uh, a, long, a Long Island native, uh, Elliot Easton. From we the cars, two yeah. Albums. Yeah, and uh, uh, I played at the Paramount with the Empty Hearts several years back, so I'm looking forward to coming back there. And it's a makeup show for us from, uh, you know, we had just been on a big arena tour in the U.K., and that was supposed to be the warm-up show for uh, for various reasons we were unable to do it at the time. So we're looking forward to playing in a pretty small venue, but I remember the stage being really great. And uh, we're definitely up for the show, and uh, we're going on from there to uh, Connecticut, and we're doing a couple of shows uh in New York City, uh, around I think the 17th and 18th of August, and mm -hmm. uh, we have the archival box coming out August 28th, which uh, Tommy Manzi asked me to plug, so I'm very proud of that. And we also coincidentally just uh, recorded a new Blondie album as well that'll be out next year. So we're kind of like on both ends of the spectrum with the archival box, looking back at our past history, and also making a new record at the same time. So. It's an exciting time for the band, uh, you know, post-pandemic or as post-pandemic as we can get right now. Hopefully uh, everyone stays well and uh, everybody stops hating each other. That Anybody <laughs> yeah. who's out there who has any kind of discrepancy with any kind of homophobia or racial issues or any of that, you got to get rid of all that and just live your life and spread the love. You got it, Clem. Well, again, okay, that, thanks for stopping by, and uh, we'll see you Wednesday night up in Huntington. Oh, great. Okay, thanks a lot for your time, man. Peace and love to everyone. Bye.
That's Clem Burke, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Cleon Jones and Clem Burke, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next week, August 14th. Keep an eye out for who we will be talking to. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.